You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 18th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, are we to expect a military push by Vladimir Putin as the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine approaches? Also ahead... We have learned our lesson and we want to live in peace with India, Mm -hmm. provided we are able to resolve our genuine problems. Pakistan extends an olive branch to India, paving the way for talks to resolve outstanding issues between the two countries. Then we'll head to Davos, where indigenous people in the Arctic want to be a bigger part of the climate change debate. There are fishing lakes, hunting grounds, reindeer grazing lands. Our traditional uh, livelihoods are using these areas and it's what I would call our cultural scenery. And finally, we visit the US town which has turned the electoral process into Groundhog Day. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The alleged head of a criminal network involved in an EU Parliament corruption scandal has agreed to reveal which countries were involved. Ukraine says it's a step closer to winning approval for Germany's Leopard 2 battle tanks. And the world's oldest known person has died aged 118. Lucille Rondon, a French nun known as Sister Andre, survived Covid aged 117 and enjoyed a daily glass of wine. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, officials in Kyiv have warned that as, as the first anniversary approaches of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that Vladimir Putin could order his troops to make a so-called final push. There are signs of a renewed sense of urgency by Moscow with the announcement of a major overhaul of its army. Well, joining me now is James Rogers, the author of Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin and a regular voice here in Monocle 24. Good to have you, James. Good morning. Good morning, Emma. So what signs are there that Russia is preparing for this push? Well, these announcements yesterday by the Defence Minister, Sergei Shoigu, about what he called major changes in the Russian military. They've already said previously they want to get the military personnel up to 1.5 million, really, really high numbers, obviously, and a very large army reflecting the geographical size of the largest country on earth. Um, But there's interesting, if you're looking at some of the detail of what Shoigu says, he's talking about strengthening the key structural components of the armed forces to guarantee the military security of the state and and this is the key bit and to protect new entities uh, and and critical facilities of the Russian Federation. Now those new entities are clearly a reference to those regions uh, of Ukraine of which Russia announced the annexation back in September and of which it does not yet have actually full control. But it's a sign here I think that Russia is really as you say, the first anniversary of the war approaches is, is showing no sign of scaling down, quite the opposite, in fact. Why would he choose to be so public about an issue which clearly suggests that the way that Russia has been operating in Ukraine hasn't been going their way? Well, I think if we if we look back at the sort of medium term, you know, if we think back to the mobilisation um, last year, which was never supposed to happen when suddenly... 
Russia's military campaign, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, went, the terminology went from special military operation, in other words, something that could be con contained in which specialists and military experts uh, in the armed forces could very competently and capably take care of, to this wider mobilization, which was suggesting, you know, this is we were up against much bigger, um, you know, much a bigger threat than we thought, so we're going to need to bring people in. And suddenly, you know, the war, which had been largely out of a lot of ordinary Russians' lives, unless they were already, you know, serving military personnel, uh, this suddenly started to come home. And it's been accompanied in this shift in rhetoric too, um, with this idea that instead of simply this denazification, uh, as Russia somewhat absurdly termed its original purpose in invading uh, Ukraine, has turned into something more, a world in which uh, Russia is surrounded by uh, and threatened by hostile Western enemies and therefore needs to respond uh, accordingly. How is this going to be received in Russia, which uh, up until now, well, we're not. I'm not entirely sure what the what the Russian state of mind is at the moment, given that this thing has been stretching for nearly a year now. Well, I think there'll be a lot of people remember that you know alongside this military campaign, Russia has um, very strictly controlled the media. Any last vestiges of independent Russian journalism have been very um, quickly and effectively silenced uh, by threatening people with jail, and a lot of Russian journalists, in consequence, have gone into exile. The same is true of a lot of international news organisations. So even for those Russians um, who were minded to circumvent the technical obstacles that are placed in their way of accessing international news sites. There's a limited amount of material coming out of there, which is all, you know, a, a, a way of saying that for many parts of the Russian population, a lot of them will be buying the official line, that they are somehow um, under threat from the West. This isn't something that um, has started to come out of Kremlin propaganda in the last 12 months or so. This has been a constant um, you know, refrain of President Putin, arguably, since the Munich Security Conference in 2007, when he, he started talking about a, a, a unipolar world and, and, united, and criticizing the way the United States was conducting himself. Remember, criticizing NATO's um, enlargement after the end of the Cold War has been a mainstay uh, of Russian um, foreign policy for many years, and this uh, is being portrayed at home as the, the natural response to that. Tell us a little bit more about this 1.5 million um, soldiers that, that they need. I mean, where do they get them from? They're already dipping into conscription. Well, they are, and under the terms of the Russian constitution, conscript soldiers aren't supposed to be sent into combat zones, but they this is something that really isn't observed in practice right the way back to the Chechen wars of the late 1990s. And there was a couple of cases um, last year when it was discovered that conscript soldiers had been sent to the front line. And then there was sort of official, uh, there was suggesting there'd be official inquiries with the senior officers as to how that had happened. But I mean, nobody really takes that terribly seriously. Um, you know, there have been a number of accounts of people who were drafted. Maybe some of them had done their basic military training a while ago, but, you know, men who are in their 30s and 40s who were drafted uh, back in the fall who were sent to the front line. So it does seem that Russia is deploying people, you know, not fully trained professional soldiers uh, and including some of their conscripts. But as far as that figure goes, of course, you know, while the Russian population has been uh, declining in recent years, it is still, you know, over 140 million and it is still a legal obligation for every man to serve in the army. Um, uh, you know, unless there, there are exemptions, of course, but that does mean that there is... Um, you know, there is, you know, to, to put it bluntly, there is a, a very large supply of 18-year-old men who can be drafted in Russia. From Ukraine's point of view, to have this announcement made with the with joint military exercises taking place with, between Russia and Belarus, 
with the sense that with the anniversary of the of the of the invasion fast approaching, what can it do other than ask the weapons for ask the West for more weapons? Well, that's obviously been a mainstay of, of what Ukraine is trying to do. We've seen the British Challenger tanks going there. We see the ongoing debate of whether Germany is going to allow tanks to be exported to. Um, and so I think this is what Ukraine has constantly been asking for. And Ukraine also, um, again, Ukraine has been very astute at keeping um, its public relations battle going and a really, really important part of modern conflict uh, in terms of keeping up the profile, in terms of President Zelensky's addresses and in terms of, you know, his... His speech is via video to um, to parliaments around the world. But th this is what Ukraine has constantly asked for weapons. And it looks like, you know, in recent weeks, the West is continuing uh, to respond to that. I mean, I think one thing about, you know, that this Russian um, upgrading and expansion and restructuring of its military said, tells us this is not something which they think is going to go away. You know, this is not something that you would announce if you thought you were in weeks of the significant victory. This is telling the world and telling Russia and telling the Russian people uh, and indeed their Ukrainian foes. Uh, this is something that we realise is going to have to go on for a while. We had the story emerging yesterday of the um, former Wagner Group commander, um, now being held in Norway, having left command uh, Wagner Group, saying that he had witnessed war crimes being committed in Ukraine. Um, the fact that you have the mercenary Wagner Group's commander saying that even what he saw was beyond the pale. Um, I mean, he witnessed atrocities and he evaded the special unit which hunts deserters down. Um, he's a man who's going to be looking over his shoulder for a long time, but how useful is what he has to say? It's going to be very interesting to see that. You've probably seen that the, um, the Norwegian excuse me, agency whose job it is to investigate possible war crimes is going to be debriefing him. Um, the New York Times, of course, spoke to this man, Andrei Medvedev, uh, a number of times before he left Russia. I mean, his story is that he deserted in November and has been in hiding in Russia, moving from city to city until he was able to cross the land border between Norway and Russia you know, very sparsely populated area, of course, uh, but also pretty heavily guarded, particularly at the moment. Um, and the New York Times, you know, catalogued some of the uh, atrocities which he claims he's witnessed, but they're, even they are fairly circumspect about it. And they note in, in one of the reports that the, his own accounts of his life and military service have been contradictory. So it's difficult to know, really. I mean, obviously, if he is who he says he is, and the New York Times also say that they've spoken to some people who served with him and confirmed that he did indeed join Wagner and did indeed leave it. Um, but if he is who he says he is, it will be a very interesting insight into the way um, that they operate, which could be valuable, um, if one would imagine, for intelligence services and perhaps even eventually uh, for prosecutors. How much of an influence is the Wagner Group in the, co in the conflict? I mean, it, uh, I'm under the impression that they make around 10% of the Russian force now. Well, they've been they've had a very high profile in the last week or so, you know, with these Russian claims that they captured the Ukrainian town of Solidar. And it was interesting to note that on its Telegram channel last week, um, the Russian defense ministry and its sort of official publication, its official post on there also, um, you know, paid credit to Wagner eventually, because I think there's, there's something of a of a political battle going on here, really, for for attention. Um, Wagner, of course, is uh, is led by Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is, um, you know, seen by some as, you know, a, a war hero. Others, as, of course, much more widely outside Russia as a war criminal. Um, and 
and and here's there there are sort of there's a sort of if you like there's a Russian internal political issue here too, um, because if the campaign is seen at any stage as having faltered. There may be consequences, you know, for um, it, it, people will be saying, well, look, maybe these, you know, these Wagner guys are doing what needs to be done in Ukraine. Why isn't the army doing it? So it's a difficult game and may ultimately have um, potential political consequences. Some people have even suggested that Mr. Prigozhin might see himself uh, as a future president of Russia. So it's 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 an interesting um it's an interesting case, which has not only a military dimension on the battlefield, but also potentially a domestic political dimension in Russia. James Rogers, as ever, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. Thirteen in Karachi, 7.13am here in London. You're with The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Now, Pakistan's Prime Minister has extended an olive branch to his Indian counterpart to open talks on all outstanding issues between the two countries. It includes the disputed region of Kashmir. In a television interview, Shehbaz Sharif said, we have learned our lessons. I'm joined by Aisha Siddiqui, who's a senior fellow at the Department of War Studies at King's College in London. A very good morning to you, Aisha. Hi, good morning. So what does he mean by we have learned our lessons? Well, probably, you know, it is pointing towards Pakistan's dire economic conditions. Uh, and perhaps he's what he's saying is that the military, which used to kind of interrupt the peace process every time an initiative was, uh, you know, was undertaken, uh, you know, they would either send militants or, you know, do something else. Um, you know, probably they've learned their lesson and they'll sit back while the political government he's indicating is going to, uh, you know, is offering peace talks to India. Um, and when you heard this this statement, it was delivered to a, um, a television station in Dubai. What was your reaction to it? He's probably asking the United Arab Emirates and the rulers there who have good relations with India to probably intervene and convince the Indian government to start talking to Pakistan. I mean, India doesn't talk to Pakistan at the moment. How much does this suggest that Pakistan is now on the back foot? Because obviously when you have two countries which have been engaged in a standoff for such a long time, to have one person now saying, we need to talk, we have learned our lessons. How much does that put the power in Narendra Modi's hand? Well, I think it's important to clarify that, you know, the foreign Pakistan's foreign office immediately uh, clarified one thing. We said that, you know, we haven't stepped away from our, uh, you know, from our condition, which is that India should, should, you know, improve human rights conditions in Kashmir uh, and, you know, kind of review its decision it, that it took regarding Article 370 in, in Kashmir and, you know, uh, go back to uh, take Kashmir back to where it used to be before, uh, you know, the change, change the laws in, in 2020. Uh, or 2019, perhaps. Um, 
Now, the thing is that the conditionality remains. But more than that, I think what Pakistan is trying to say is that we want to open trade relations uh, with India. Um, now, my problem with this, uh, you know, uh, this stance is that it's not actually a change in stance. Uh, Pakistan is what Pakistan needs to do is actually establish a process internally. I think it hasn't kind of finished with a dialogue domestically so that different stakeholders, be it the military, be it political parties, all the stakeholders who would, you know, who would, would who could create problems later, uh, are on the same page. I mean, it's, it was not too long ago when Pakistan's former, you know, now former army chief, but then army chief, General Kamar Javed Bajwa, had made a similar uh, kind of statement in 2021, uh, but. The problem was that in, he, he'd spoken at the in Islamabad Security Conference. And Imran Khan then initially ordered import of food items from, you know, it was wheat, it was sugar, and, and one other item, three items from India. But immediately he changed uh, his, his own decision. He, uh, you know, he went back on his decision and uh, said that, no, no, they're not going to import anything uh, from India until the Kashmir issue is solved. And part of the problem is that within the military, there are elements who object to it. Uh, and Imran Khan did it. He, he revised his decision because he thought that the cost of doing trade with India would be very high. So my point is that I think Pakistan should develop a consensus within. And the same goes for India. So in that context, when you have both countries trying to develop a, a sort of a single voice, what needs to be done to make sure that the words of the Pakistani prime minister lead to something which is productive? See, I don't think that in, in the next couple of years anything productive is going to come out. Um, India is kind of about to uh, get into its what we call its election cycle. I think it's in 2024, uh, it's going to start preparing for its general elections. And Modi and the Hindutva government wouldn't be keen to, to, to see peace. I mean, until uh, it is on its conditions. And on its conditions means that Pakistan completely withdraws from its position on Kashmir, uh, you know, completely gives up any talk of uh, revising, uh, India revising its policy in Kashmir. So that's one. But Hindutva uh, and, and Modi's BJP is not keen. I mean, if they're, they're going to win elections, they want to appear more right-wing, more belligerent in Pakistan. Uh, so I don't think that India will be too keen. Aisha Sadika, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. Now, remember this? Well, it's Groundhog Day again, and that must mean that we're up here at Gobbler's Knob waiting for the forecast from the world's most famous Groundhog weatherman, Punxsutawney Phil. Well, Groundhog Day is set in Pennsylvania, but could real events in the state by echoing the experiences of Bill Murray in the movie from three decades ago. We'll find out later on The Globalist. 
UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Eight twenty in Paris, seven twenty here in London. Now the president of Vietnam has resigned from his post and retired at the same time. Nguyen Xuan Phuc's departure has come as rather of a surprise for a communist country, more used to carefully orchestrated transitions. Well, let's hear from Bill Hayton, Associate Fellow at Chatham House's Asia-Pacific Programme and the author of the new book, A Brief History of Vietnam. Good morning to you, Bill. Good morning, Emma. Good to have you with us. Now, just tell us what's happened. Uh, well, <laughs> there was a part of the bold facts, of, of, which are basically a series of resignations. But really what's going on here is a takeover by the security faction, if you like, uh, within Vietnam. It's, it's like uh, Xi Jinping has come to town in Vietnam. Uh, I mean, both China and Vietnam are communist states, uh, have a lot of similarities, but also plenty of differences. But this really does feel like uh, what was going on in China a few years ago when Mr. Xi used the idea of uh, anti-corruption to really consolidate his control. And I think that's what we're seeing in Vietnam today. So what went wrong then for Nguyen Xuan Phuc to, that he found himself in, in an, ine an inevitable departure lounge? Uh, so Mr. Fook is a, seen as a sort of you know a technocrat, somebody who's been very good at running policy. Um, he oversaw you know a, a big rise in foreign investment, for example. Um, but I think uh, his big sin was to become a star. And because he was known uh, as a sort of a, a strong individual, strong reformer, uh, he put his head up above the parapet. And that's a real sin for the for the hardcore Leninists in Vietnam who want party discipline above everything else. Now, there's no denying there have been some absolutely enormous corruption scandals uh, in Vietnam, uh, particularly during COVID. Um, and the other two uh, deputy prime ministers who were forced to resign uh, earlier, a few days ago, um, they you know, were probably up to their necks in it. So there's no doubt about that. Um, Vietnam organized uh, repatriation flights during COVID for about 200,000 Vietnamese overseas. Uh, on average, each one was scammed by for about $1,000. Somebody somewhere in that system made $200 million out of the repatriation flights, and those people have taken the fall for it. Another big uh, scandal was about uh, the provision of substandard testing kits for COVID. Uh, again, another you know, 100 million perhaps made, made from that. Um, and, you know, outrage has been rising. But the way Mr. Chom has, he's, he's the general secretary of the Communist Party, has used these corruption scandals has been to take down the, the sort of the stars of government and reinforce the control of the, 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 uh, the Ministry of Public Security and the, and the hardcore Leninists in Vietnam. Explain a little bit more about those who you believe are behind this uh, rather wholesale um, sort of like clear out of the top. Uh, well, there are... The, Understanding the Communist Party in Vietnam is, is always very difficult. It's very opaque and secretive. Um, but you basically have people, uh, and Mr. Chom, who's the general secretary of the Communist Party, therefore the number one uh, leader in Vietnam, uh, he's been trying to have a campaign to enforce party discipline, to sort of stop uh, the idea that government and, and sort of you know more liberal 
uh, types, you know, should be running the show. He, he really strongly believes that the only way you, you, you maintain communism into the future is by having party discipline. And he and his allies in the Ministry of Public Security uh, are basically taking out the people who became too well known uh, and sort of, you know, too individualistic uh, during the, the last few years. Um, and Mr. Chom is very old. Uh, he's had some health problems, and I see this as him securing his legacy, perhaps before he finally uh, steps down. Um, we're going to uh, so the, uh, the the but to give you an idea of just you know the, the Ministry of Public Security, you know, despite their name, are not the kind of clean hands that you might think they are. Um, the, the the Minister of Public Security on a visit to London during the the COVID uh, sorry, sorry during the the COP26 summit in, in Glasgow uh, was filmed eating a gold plated steak that possibly cost £2,000. Um, uh, people in Vietnam, you know, if you talk about the police being clean, you know, will just laugh at you. Problem is nobody watches the watchers. So the idea that this is the clean hands taking over uh, is, is, is a nonsense. This, this is about the kind of the, uh, the, the, the real, you know, true believers in communism taking over from those who are slightly more liberal. It's often said that the, the, one of the key... Success, you know, successes to the way that a communist country manages itself and its people is by exercising cautious stability the whole way through. What effect does this clear out that you've described, what will it have on the way that the Vietnamese people themselves will be reacting? Uh I, I think, you know, we've been seeing in the last, you know, year or so uh, a, a closing of the space for discussion. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, civil society organisations working on the environment and, and other things being being closed down. Uh, restrictions on what uh, uh, organisations have been able to say, um, where, you know, you know squeezing of, of, the, of the press space. You know, and generally when these things happen, you know, the space for policy error and for mistakes and things just increases because there are no sort of critical voices um, you know, pointing out the mistakes. Um, and I think that's maybe what we're going to see. I think to some extent foreign businesses, uh, those that exist in special economic zones, which are sort of slightly out of the, the sort of regulatory system, you know, they may be, they'll, they'll get on okay, probably state-owned enterprises, you know, for at least in the short term, maybe they'll get on okay, but the domestic private sector is going to get squeezed. And I think there's um, going to be some economic um, headwinds in, a, in the upcoming sort of over the next three years, I would have thought. And the wider effect on the region that will have a slightly, de that will have a destabilised neighbour? Um, well, I wouldn't. Well, it's. I mean, Vietnam is the what the fifteenth, you know, largest popular by country in the world by population. It's, it, but it's not the largest country in Southeast Asia. You got Indonesia, you have got the Philippines, um, but it's uh, it's an, an important player. Um, so it, I think it'll, uh, you know, Vietnam will, you know, I think we'll see a sort of a closing down. I think it'll be it'll be maybe less of a regional player, become more inward focused uh, on this. This is a time I think when. Um, a lot of countries have been hoping that Vietnam was going to step up and, and play a bigger part, you know, in the various, um, you know, Indo-Pacific um, sort of games which are going on now, sort of work, working with the US or, or with the Europeans or whatever. I think we're going to see them turn a bit more inwards on this and be a bit more suspicious of the outside world. Um, so, uh, you know, and I think that means that the region, Southeast Asia, rather than having a, a cohesive sort of regional identity, we're going to see a bit, even more of a trend towards the 10 countries of Southeast Asia sort of doing their own thing rather than, than working collectively. It is an interesting situation, isn't it, that you don't often hear Vietnam 
poking its head above the parapet, and yet it has it is you know a communist state surrounded by very very different kinds of countries. How does it manage to do that without drawing too much attention to itself? Uh, because despite being the fifteenth most populous country in the world, there are about three English language journalists there. Um, Vietnam has made it sort of difficult for um, you know foreign op- reporters to operate there. Uh, it's very bureaucratic. Uh, lots of people, lots of journalist organisations cover Vietnam from outside, from Bangkok, from Singapore, um, and so and, and it does a very good job of sort of keeping what happens um, internally uh, opaque. And so you kind of if you if you're not sitting in Vietnam, you know, kind of understanding who these various people are, it all just looks like you know what one guy with dyed black hair replacing another guy with dyed black hair. Um, and you know, it's, you have to kind of see the long-term patterns to work out what's going on. So I think you know, um, uh, people who. You know, live there, have a, a strong sense of, of what's going on, but they're often, you know, if they're Vietnamese, uh, particularly at the moment, you know, they're not in a, in a strong position to, to, to speak up about it. Bill Hayton, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Globalist. The time is just coming up to 7.29 here in London. In a moment, we head to Davos, but first, a quick summary of some of the other day's headlines we're following today. The alleged head of a criminal network involved in an EU corruption scandal has agreed to reveal which countries were involved. Pier Antonio Panzeri, who's a former member of the European Parliament, is one of four people being held on suspicion of accepting bribes from Qatar and Morocco in return for influencing the Parliament in Brussels. Ukraine says it's a step closer to winning approval for Germany's Leopard 2 battle tanks. Germany has previously been the West's biggest holdout on pledging tanks, and the issue would be the first to be decided by the new defence minister, Boris Pistorius. He'll host the US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin tomorrow before a meeting of defence ministers at Ramstein Air Base in Germany on Friday. And the world's oldest known person has died aged 118. Lucille Rondon, a French nun known as Sister André, was born in southern France on the 11th of February 1904, a decade before the First World War. She survived Covid aged 117 and enjoyed a daily glass of wine. And those are the headlines. Let's head now to the World Economic Forum in Davos. It's brought together almost 3,000 leaders and experts from around the world. Well, one of the guests is Aslak Holmberg, who's president of the Sami Council, an NGO that represents the indigenous Sami people from the northern parts of Finland, Sweden, Norway and Russia. He spoke to Monocle's Marcus Hippie. Well, I'm part of the indigenous people's delegation. That is, I think, for the first time we are around 10 people. So it's growing the indigenous um, participation here. So the aim is to get our voice um, better heard also in the global economic discussions. So I'll be talking about um, climate change, uh, both direct and indirect impacts uh, that uh, it has on our communities, culture and rights. And also how should our rights be acknowledged in uh, in business framework when considering uh, for example outside investors approach towards uh, the sami then why it's important for also for their benefit to consider our rights so these are the main main messages. Shall we start with the impact of, of, of the climate change? Obviously some aspects are more obvious than others. We know that the weather is getting warmer and you are feeling the impact of that. But the climate change comes with, with many other issues you're facing as well. 
Yes, so part that I'm talking about is the indirect impact. So besides us um, being uh, or ongoing these uh, ecological uh, major shifts in the seasons and in the um, species populations and, and so on, then we have impacts of the push for the green shift. So we have uh, many different kinds of development projects uh, proposed to our territories, which uh, often uh, compete over the land use um, with our traditional uh, ways of using the lands. What kind of things are you talking about? What has been proposed and what is happening? For example, um, wind power industry is a growing uh, or booming industry also in the in the Sami territories, uh, often without the consent of the communities. And another one is the mining industry for for minerals for the electrification of uh, transportation, for example. What kind of a challenge is it for you, us like in international circles, try to make people understand where you come from, obviously where the indigenous Sami people live, for example, in the very high up north in Finland, Sweden, Norway and, and Russia, we can safely presume that about 99% of people have never been there and most people don't understand what life is like. Yeah, definitely it's uh, it's part of the challenge because we have to start from very basics to tell that we actually exist, we are there, what is our livelihood. Uh, and I guess many people when they think of the Arctic, they think of this vast, uh, even empty areas. But like in our region, we don't have any areas that we would not be using actively. So that's part of the message that we have to try to deliver. So just in case someone doesn't know how you use all of those territories, can you tell us? Yeah, so uh, for example, the vast uh, tundra areas and forests are reindeer grazing lands, there are hunting grounds, there are fishing lakes and rivers there. So um, these are our traditional uh, livelihoods are using these areas and, and it's what I would call our cultural scenery, like our cultural scenery is uh, unmodified uh, nature. You work as a president of the Sami Council, representing the indigenous Sami people from, as I said already, Russia, Sweden, Finland and Norway. Does it come with challenges representing all those people from those countries? In today's situation, there are um, challenges. For example, our official cooperation with the member organizations on the Russian side is, is on hold. So currently, we are not speaking on behalf of them. But I would say at times of peace, our cooperation has been very fluent. Um, our interests are common. We work with uh, cultural issues, with language, with uh, rights to traditional practices and economies. Uh, with um, yeah. What is your feeling about the situation that some people are facing at the moment? Obviously, the Sami Council is a great organization representing the interests of those people. But how optimistic do you feel about the future? How many challenges are there to tackle at the moment to, to, to improve your situation? Well, uh, we don't lack challenges, that's, uh, that's for sure. I mean, we are in a situation of political marginalization and that is framing everything. Like, as I I'll be talking about here, the fundamental changes that we are going through regarding the environmental changes. But then when you add uh, the political marginalization and the push for green shift um, and, and the demand for our areas. Um, so th these are some huge uh, challenges that, uh, that we are facing. But that being said, we are working with different methods and, and there have been some uh, 
positive outcomes. Like now we have uh, Supreme Court uh, rulings in favor of the Sami people from Norway, Finland and Sweden. So we have some uh, legal recognition of our rights to practice our culture. So, so that is something to, to work on. Have you come across something or do you see something that has particularly delighted you when it comes to different ways of supporting your culture and how you can keep the Sami culture alive? Well, I would say that uh, the Sami cultural field uh, is is very diverse and we have, uh, of course, when we talk about culture, we're talking it in a broad sense. So we talk about the traditional livelihoods, the language and and, and so on. But of course, we have these uh, new and emerging fields of Sami culture. For example, the Sami film industry is something that is uh, growing um, year by year and, and getting better, I would say, and getting more attention. So that's uh, I'm I'm excited about these kinds of new developments. Asla, give us some film recommendations. Yeah, actually, I think tomorrow is the one premiere. There was the first screening already of a new Sami film called Ellos Etnu. La Elva Leva, I think, is the name in Norwegian, but it's about the Alta case, um, which was a groundbreaking um, event in the Sami political movement regarding hydropower development. So it's also very relevant for today's uh, discussions around the green shift. But that's a major film that is brand new and coming to the theaters. That was Aslak Holmberg, president of the Sami Council, speaking to Monocle's Marcus Hippie at the World Economic Forum in Davos. in Berlin, 7.37am here in London. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me down the line is Stephanie Boltzen, the UK and Ireland correspondent for Die Welt. Good morning, Stephanie. Good morning, how are you? Very well, thank you, and delighted to have you with us this morning. Um, Big news coming out of Germany yesterday, a quick turnaround uh, when it comes to uh, who's in the defence ministry. We lost Christina Lambrecht on Monday uh, because of a series of gaffes, but we have a new man in town. Yes, um, and uh, I think it was really uh, necessary that uh, there was would be a very quick turnaround. So uh, the, the new man is uh, Boris Pistorius. He's, he was until uh, yeah, yesterday, so to say, the interior minister of Lower Saxony. And he is now the new German defense secretary. And the truth is that uh, there's a big job for, waiting for him and very urgently. Uh, not only because the Bundeswehr, the German uh, army, the German military is in a very bad state, but especially, of course, obviously, because of the war in Ukraine. And um, on Thursday, um, the... um US uh, Defense Secretary is visiting Berlin. And then on th- Friday, of course, there's this very um, important meeting in Rammstein, the US base in, in Germany, where there will be uh, the discussion about uh, more military support for Ukraine and, and, of course, especially delivering tanks. And this is the big uh, elephant in the room because Olaf Scholz, the German uh, chancellor, is hesitant to send tanks. And Pistorius will be there. And he's on the record saying Ukraine must win the war. So there is, of course, uh, especially by the Ukrainians, but also the allies like Britain, for example, Britain is sending tanks. A lot of high expectations that Pistorius will, will deliver. Of course, in the end, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor, will decide. 
But yeah, there's high expectations and a lot of pressure on, on the new German defence secretary, and rightly so. Indeed, I think yesterday we mentioned on Monocle 24 that Berlin calls this position the ejector seat because there have been, what, 20 defence ministers in, uh, in since, since uh, the Second World War and only, only one of them has ever made it to, um, to, to being Chancellor. But what's been the reaction to, to Pistorius's um, appointment? Because, as you say, he seems to have a more sort of direct and dynamic approach to, to the war in Ukraine. Well, he was obviously not on the uh, on the cards to be the new defense secretary. It's a bit of a surprise. There was um, the expectations that Eva Hügel, who's uh, actually had never been in a in a ministerial post, that she would be the next defense minister simply because she is a woman. Because Olaf Scholz, when when he became chancellor, promised that he would uh, have a, a cabinet that is half woman and half man. So he actually needed a woman. There was a lot of controversy around this, of course, in the German media. Uh, in the end, he decided to. Um, to nominate uh, Pistorius. And that, I think, had very much to do with him being interior minister, having been on a lot of committees uh, related to the Bundeswehr and the security and, and defense issues. So um, that is the one reaction. There is in the SPD a lot, so the uh, Chancellor's Party, the Social Democrats, there's a lot of criticism that's a man and not a woman. On the other hand, the CDU opposition um, it's relatively positive about Pistorius. There is another interesting uh, aspect to this, which is that Pistorius, being from uh, Lower Saxony and being from Hannover, in the past he was close to Gerhard Schröder, um, the former chancellor, of course, who is a close friend or was is a close friend of Vladimir Putin, and that Pistorius was also close to Schröder and therefore actually quite, quite close to Russia. So there is a lot of aspects how to look at um, the new defence secretary and uh, quite some interesting angles. Uh, let's move on to a story which is uh, sort of hitting the head headlines now because it sort of broke about six or seven hours ago. Uh, we have Pier Antonio Panzeri, a, a former uh, European uh, parliamentarian, I mean, but currently being held um, because of the EU Qatargate bribery scandal. Yeah. Um, his lawyer has said that he's willing to speak. Yeah, this is really interesting. And actually, you're saying it's just hitting the headlines. Uh, I've, it's on the BBC in this case. I've checked the German media. It's not so much in the German media yet, interestingly, but I think it's a big development in the scandal around the corruption scandal in the um, European Parliament. And as you say, Pierre Antonio Panzeri is in the centre of this uh, scandal. He's a former MEP and he um, he was running a, a, an NGO uh, about uh, fight impunity, uh, you might you might have a bitter laugh about uh, this kind of NGO he was um, he was running, and he has now done a deal with the Belgian um, uh, prosecutor, which interestingly, I mean, he is Italian and is based on a on a uh, actually mafia law in Italy, where um, successfully the Italian. Police has started to uh, convince uh, former mafiosi to cooperate and therefore um, get uh, maybe not as uh, strict and as severe um, punishment when they are convicted. And so um, Panzeri has also agreed to this and has said uh, he will tell all after reaching that deal with the prosecutors in, in Brussels. And of course, if, as allegedly, he has been in the in the middle of this scandal, where at least, well, there were 1.5 million euro seized by the police, probably is much more. Um, if he tells it all, he's 67, he might have said, um, I'm, I'm quite old, I don't want to be in prison for 20 years. He might only get a, sh a much shorter prison sentence. Um, I think it's a year. 
So uh, he will have to tell it all. And that might mean not only that he will um, shed a lot of light on what uh, what his MEPs have done, his colleague MEPs, but more people. And um, this is why I think it's a, it's a, it's a big development. It is a big de- development because it will very quickly get to the heart of a scandal which has absolutely rocked Europe. Yes, absolutely. And it's been it's a it's a terrible, terrible in the way because of the reputation of the European Parliament, where, as you know, there have been scandals time, time and again uh, in the last years. But this is, uh, as far as I remember, the, the biggest one. And and what if uh, there is much high ranking, much more high ranking uh, EU parliamentarians involved, as you said, it's uh, allegedly corrupt or bribes given by Qatar and Morocco to get uh, good and positive reports uh, and resolutions in the European Parliament. And the scandal might now uh, very quickly uh, get a lot of dynamic and a lot of more revelations. Finally, and briefly, briefly if you can, Mm. even though it is a very complicated story (laughs) that I know you want to talk about, um, England and Scotland, the parliaments going at each other a lot, but this term, this time, is over a particularly thorny issue, which is gender reform. Yeah, it's about it's about a bill that was adopted um, just before Christmas in in Scotland about um, gender um, recognition, the re- gender recognition bill. So that says that transgender people basically can get a self identification certificate much quicker and much easier. And this has been blocked by the British government for the first time since the um, Scottish Parliament was established back in 1999. And there's now a big row between Edinburgh, so Nicola Sturgeon and Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister. And this will end up in court. And it's it's going to be very interesting also how the court sees um, the, the this law, because uh, the question uh, at the bottom is, does this law go too far and might restrict the rights of uh, say, for example, women in single-sex changing rooms, um, in, in um, houses for the protection of women, because theoretically, if by the self-identification certificate, biological men, and I know it's very controversial, might enter um, only female spaces. It's complicated. Thank you so much, Stephanie Boltson, for clarifying everything. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems, and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Let's take a moment now to talk about art. Ben Luke is contributing editor at the art newspaper and presenter of its podcast and brandishes a stack of notes, which we are going to find really useful for the next year, aren't we, Ben? You've sprung into the Monocle 24 studio with all the stuff that we need to know for 2023. Well, yes, I mean, obviously, this is a selection, but but at the same time, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really exciting year. There's so much 
to feast on in terms of art this year, so I thought I'd just do a little preview of a few things. Thank you very much indeed. I like the fact that you use the word feast because that suggests a glut of wonderful things. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Um, and to begin with, let's talk about Celebration Picasso because it's 50 years since Picasso died. Um, and there are 50 exhibitions across the world of, uh, in fact, more than 50 of Picasso's work, ranging from pairing him with old masters, with his peers and getting contemporary artists to look at Picasso to focusing on every aspect of his work over his very long life. So from the earliest period to the middle period, literally a show about three months of his life in Fontainebleau and then and then uh, works from his late period, for instance. So, so there's a, he's he's somebody that you can give this much attention to and still create a, a sort of a, a wealth of extraordinary shows. Indeed, I mean, wealth and extraordinary is something that you can always describe the just the sheer amount of art that P- Picasso created. Yeah. It was is it's absolutely overwhelming. Now, you have, however, said that not everyone is celebrating it. So, so explain to us why this is an article that you've written in the art newspaper. Explain why it's slightly problematic. Well, I think I think. There is no doubt that Picasso was a deeply flawed human. And I think, you know, even his his biographer, John Richardson, who in, in effect lionised him, almost turned him into this godlike figure, recognised that he was incredibly cruel when he needed to be. And, and in fact, the comedian Hannah Gadsby uh, has talked about this on, in, in uh, Nanette, which is one of her great stage shows, and described him as a misogynist, which I think is accurate, you know. And she is going to curate a show at the Brooklyn Museum in June. And I think this will be really interesting because I think we have to have the scope for Picasso, the man, to be attended to, to 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 criticise him, to to look at the the facts of his life, because biography has always been centred in his work. He himself said his work was like a diary. He dated it, you know. And so there is there is going to be a lot of biography this year, as well as a lot of very formal works looking at this, you know, shows looking at this extraordinary uh, breadth of imagination and the the variety of his practice. Okay, we look forward to a year of Picasso. Wonderful stuff. Uh, Let's head to Amsterdam. Just as exciting, the Rijksmuseum's got a wonderful new Vermeer exhibition. Yeah, and I think once in a lifetime is an overstretched phrase, but I think in this case, this really could be a once in a lifetime show. It's Why? got. Well, I think, you know, you have to think that these works are very old. They are the. Um, prime works in many of the collections that hold them and they are not lent very often and they are fragile and therefore the idea of gathering 28 of them as the, as the Rijksmuseum has done is is a very, very, very rare thing and I can't imagine it's going to be repeated very often, if at all. And so 28 of the 37 identified Vermeers are going to be in the Rijksmuseum at once. Um, there's some controversy about a couple of them, whether they are Vermeers or not, but still, extraordinary. We all, you know, what a great artist. Extraordinary light, amazing intensity, uh, emotional drama, even if it's perfectly understated, etc., etc. You know, you cannot imagine a more... Uh, urgent show to see if you can. 100,000 tickets already sold, though, so I think, you need to get in quickly. I think 100,001 are just about to be sold. <laughs> um, let's move on to um, let's move on to something that's happening in the Met. Yeah, and um, the Met's got lots of good shows. There's a Manet Degas show, which is essential, which is also at the Musée d'Orsay. But the one I wanted to point out was this one uh, of uh, an artist called Juan de Pareja, and he was a black man who was enslaved and worked in Velázquez's studio and, in fact, was the subject of one of the great Velázquez portraits made in 1650 when Velázquez was in Rome and, and Juan de Pareja was with him. Also in Rome, Velázquez signed his manumission papers and freed him. 
And as a free man, he went on to become an artist. And this is the first show to really concentrate on him as an artist, but also look at the whole whole idea of artisan labour by enslaved people in Hispanic uh, in Spain, in in the golden age of Spanish painting, in the Baroque period, so I think it will be a really revolutionary show, actually. And he is an extraordinary painter. There are some really amazing pieces in the Prado, and I think this will be a revelation to loads of people. And I think it was it, it's a fascinating scholarly exercise too. Shining an astonishingly sort of fresh and different light on something. There, yeah. uh, let's head to Boston. I like this for sort of checking into loads of flights across the world. This is going to do nothing for our carbon footprint, but who cares? This is going to be rather beautiful to see. Go on. Uh, Simone Lee, uh, the artist who was in the American Pavilion at the Venice Biennale last year and blew everything else out of the water, I thought. I thought it was the best pavilion by miles. She won the Golden Lion for her, represent, her presentation in the main show, but she should have won it for the, for the, for the um, pavilion as well. Amazing artist, deals with black femme identity and subjectivity she makes these extraordinary sculptures clay is a fun- fundamentally her medium she makes begins with clay but then makes vast bronzes um, she also uses raffia it, her references are enormously diverse but it's African culture, the African diaspora um, uh, works made by in ceramics by enslaved Americans and so on and, and, and the wealth of um, references the extraordinary subject matter. Her command of her materials is extraordinary. She is a great artist and she's at the ICA Boston and then at the Hirshhorn in Washington this year. And in 30 seconds, can you tell me what's happening at Tate Modern? Yes, yeah, so this is a really fascinating one. Piet Mondrian and Hilma Af Klimt paired. So didn't know each other, but died in the same year, 1944. Both artists who began working from nature and then went into different forms of abstraction. Of course, Hilma Af Klimt, unbelievably celebrated now, but made these works that she didn't want exhibited in her lifetime, only exhibited long afterwards. She's almost become more famous than Mondrian now. It's going to be an extraordinary pairing, but basically about nature, about the cosmos, about weird spiritual beliefs, but also sumptuous art. So, I mean, you can't get better than that. Ben, Luke, that was a feast indeed. Thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. If you've ever wondered that you're stuck in the past and fear life isn't moving on, we'll spare a thought for the vote counters of Lyoming County, Pennsylvania. Last Thursday, 28 employees of the town's authorities sat down and counted by hand nearly 60,000 ballots. The votes were from Election Day 2020. Well, to explain why and whether the result was any different from the first time around, let's hear from Scott Lucas, adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute at University College Dublin. Hello, Scott. Hey, good to talk to you, Good Emma. to talk. Well, just tell us what's happened in Wyoming, where they've got to the point where they needed to recount something that happened good two years ago. Well, they got to the point where they had to recount ballots 27 months later because of the dedicated efforts of Trumpists election deniers, and conspiracy theorists. Uh, I could use other terms, but I'll, I'll refrain from doing so on radio. What happened here is, is that this county, Wyoming County, has got about 114,000 people, had about 60,000 ballots in November 2020. Donald Trump won this county. It's not like Joe Biden won it. Trump won it with almost 70% of the vote. But a handful of dedicated Trumpists decided there must have been fraud because he should have won it with a lot more of the vote. I don't know, 80, 90 percent, whatever. 
I think more importantly, what they wanted to do is to try to expose, quote, fraud in Wyoming County and say, oh, this must have happened all across Pennsylvania, all across America. In other words, to continue the attempt that we saw for months, including the Capitol attack, to keep Donald Trump in the White House. Anyway, to cut the long story short, as you might expect, if you're on the planet of reality, as opposed to the planet of Trump, they recounted each and every ballot over three days, took 560 work hours, and they found almost no change whatsoever from the official statistics. In other words, it was a valid election in Wyoming County, just like it was across the rest of America. Do you think anything would have changed had the result been different? No, I mean, if you find out, for example, that there is or thousands of ballots in this relatively small place that were miscounted, that were uh, fraudulent, then yes, of course, because you could point to one county and you say, well, if it happened here in Pennsylvania, it must have happened in another swing state like Arizona, where, by the way, they had forced recounts months after the election. It must have happened in Georgia, where, by the way, they had mandatory recounts after the election. And you just reopen the whole question of what Donald Trump calls stop the steal. But let's flip it now. In Arizona, a recount, extensive recount, verified the election. In Georgia, verified the election. Wisconsin, verified the election. Pennsylvania, verified the election. In other words, what this count shows, if you want to look on the upside, is the American electoral system works. And it works even when there are very dedicated people who are trying to tear it apart. This is not, or is it, going to quell the doubts of those who, who deny the election? No, I mean, these, these folks have already said that the recount itself was fraudulent and that they're going to go to court and declare it invalid. You know, they're, they're never going to stop because they're invested. Um, I think there's a really quite nice quote from the guy who headed up the recount, uh, recount the election commissioner in Wyoming County. He said, look, uh, with these election deniers, uh, you close a door, they open a window. Uh, the fact is, as long as Donald Trump is still around, uh, as long as he still has people who will go to hell or high water for him, will go through this circus and have to hope that um, we hold out against the clowns. Can we ever restore trust in voting in the United States? Trust is there. You know, the, the, the issue here is, Emma, that you and I are talking about a handful of people who in a polarized America, who in America which has been uh, disfigured by the excesses of social media, who in America that has been corrupted and perverted by the guy who used to be in the White House, that that minority will shout loudly. But those who don't shout, the majority, the majority who did cast their votes, who did decide uh, that Joe Biden should be the next president, they trust the system because they went there to vote. They went there to vote in 2022, where we had mixed results for Congress. And they'll go to vote in 2024. Um, you and I have to talk about a lot of downside in the circus of American politics. But the upside is, is that at the grassroots, you know, this country has stood for almost 250 years. And yeah, I, I think the fact is, is that people still think that their electoral system is, is one which they should continue to participate in and continue to uphold. Scott Lucas, thank you so much, as ever, for joining us on Monocle 24. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Paige Reynolds, Laura Kramer and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researchers were Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Parmintuan, and our studio manager was Nora Hull. After the headlines, more music on the way and the briefing's live at midday here in London. The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.